0: Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff.
1: This is a CBC Podcast.
4: Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall.
5: And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight.
4: Defense mechanisms. The U.S. says an Iran-backed militia is behind the deaths of three of its soldiers in Jordan and is vowing to fight back. Our guest says Joe Biden has to find a way to deter without escalating.
5: Safety in numbers. Women came out in droves on the streets of Kenya this weekend to protest femicide. One advocate in Nairobi tells us the demonstrations left her emotional and gave her hope.
4: Suspension and disbelief. The head of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees says he is shocked to see countries, including Canada, pause their funding to the agency. But our guest says it is the right move for now.
5: Subsurface tension, an old shipwreck has suddenly materialized off the coast of Newfoundland. And now the race is on to figure out its story before the weather sweeps it away once more.
4: The UK's number one problem, a British town's clampdown on wild weeing meant big fines for men who relieved themselves at the side of the road. But a London lawyer argues it's a misuse of the penal code.
5: And there's a new sans-serif in town. (laughs) Microsoft completes a recalibration involving a decalibration. You'll learn about the company's new default font in the most helpful way possible on the radio. As it happens, the Monday edition, Radio Lit Figures. If you've got it, font it. This time was different. Over the past few months, Iranian-backed militias have launched more than 150 attacks on American forces in the Middle East. But there were no casualties. Now, three members of the U.S. military are dead after a drone attack on a military base in Jordan that left two dozen others injured. Yesterday, U.S. President Joe Biden vowed to respond, although he did not say how. His defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, repeated that pledge again today.
0: The President and I will not tolerate attack on U.S. forces. And we will take all necessary actions to defend the U.S. and
5: our troops. Brian Katulis is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. He used to work for the National Security Council. We reached him in Washington, D.C.
4: Brian, how would you describe the position the White House is in right now after these killings?
3: The White House is trying to strike the right balance between mounting an attack that imposes cost in reaction to this uh, loss of U.S. troops but also balancing that with not trying to get into a broader Middle East war. So they're trying to find that middle ground, which is not easy to do these days in the Middle East.
4: What would retaliation look like?
3: It'll probably take some form of attacks on the leadership of some of these militias who have been behind these attacks, and this latest attack is part of a series of about 170 attacks over the last few months. So the U.S. has retaliated before, mostly by targeting the weapons arsenals and places that have been used by these groups, including uh, drone facilities. Uh, But we also have started to develop lists of different commanders who are leaders in these militias and started to target them in in strikes. So I I think it'll, it'll be a combination of these two, I'd be surprised if the United States goes beyond Iraq and Syria to places like Iran to to target uh, individuals who may be affiliated there.
4: So you think it's going to be contained in a way?
3: Uh, yeah, it, it, there, it'll be a contained. And then the key question is, then, does this actually impose any sort of deterrence? Does this prevent future attacks? And that's that's the tricky thing, as we're seeing in other theaters in the Middle East including in the Red Sea with the Houthis in Yemen, mm-hmm. is that sometimes uh, when you strike back, it just provokes more strikes, and then there's a cycle uh, of escalation that continues.
4: How does this moment feel to you based on what you've seen in the past? It doesn't sound like you're convinced that this will be a deterrent. Are you concerned no, this will I mean, escalate it, into it, something much larger?
3: I, I think it'll probably still be the, this chronic condition of ongoing strikes. Our troops getting hit from time to time, but then the U.S. hitting back from time to time. What I I don't foresee is a wider regional war, in part because both the United States and Iran and its leaders have said they want to avoid that. So in essence, what we have here is a stepped-up escalation of what's been a shadow war between the United States and Iran that really has gone on for years. I mean, um, Iranian-backed militias have been responsible for the deaths of hundreds of Americans inside of Iraq when the U.S. had a big troop presence there. So this is just a stepped-up escalation, Uh, some of it linked to the tensions in the Middle East due to the war between uh, Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Um, So I I suspect it'll, uh, it'll be like a chronic condition but won't spiral up into a major conventional war.
4: In terms of this this particular attack on Tower 22, uh, there are reports the drone hit at the same time an American drone was returning to the base in Jordan, and they're suggesting that the U.S. defenses were down because of that or not on, on as much high alert as, the, as they might have been had that switch not been happening. What do we know about the group or groups behind this particular attack?
3: Well, if those reports are true, and I've seen them as well, mm-hmm. It shows that they've become much more sophisticated in understanding the weaknesses in um, U.S. defenses at this particular base, Tower 22. But it has echoes of what we saw on October 7th when Israel was attacked by Hamas. And they exploited um, all sorts of uh, gaps in the monitoring systems that were put in place there as well. So what we see in these groups is that they operate uh, independently. And autonomously from, from Iran, but they get support from Iran. Iran denies any foreknowledge of this attack, and it has this system in part because it wants to have some sort of uh, plausible deniability in the eyes of some. But the, these groups have opposed the U.S. troop presence, which is primarily there, first arrived there to, to be part of a regional campaign, global campaign to, to defeat the threat posed by ISIS uh, nearly 10 years ago.
4: In terms of the conflict between Israel and and Hamas, having this happen now, could the attack on on Tower 22 in Jordan and and the response to it impact, you know, the efforts to end the fighting between Israel and Hamas?
3: Oh, quite definitely. I mean, just this weekend, the CIA director, Bill Burns, was in Paris meeting with counterparts from Israel, uh, Egypt, and Qatar, And Qatar and Egypt being the key interlocutors, to Hamas to try to negotiate a longer-term ceasefire of about two months for the release of the remaining hostages. Incidents like this could easily not only distract the United States, but also raise tensions in other theaters. Basically the the law of physics in today's Middle East is that for every action, there's a reaction that is really hard to predict, and there's a certain interlinkage between these theaters and the common thread, of course, goes back to Iran. Iran has built this network of partners from Hamas in Gaza to Hezbollah in Lebanon and to these militia groups in Syria and Iraq, as well as the Houthis in Yemen, as part of its uh, forward deployment efforts to try to deter attacks on it, you know, to pr- defend mm-hmm. itself and protect its regime. So it's a very complicated moment right now. And certainly those efforts, I think they're still moving forward. Uh, we have some visitors from Qatar in Washington uh, the next few days. seems like there's very intensive diplomacy to try to isolate this incident and try to produce some progress on the ceasefire talks in Gaza.
4: Brian, I'm glad we could speak. Thanks for your time.
3: Great. Thanks for having me.
5: Brian Catulis is with the Middle East Institute Think Tank. He's in Washington, D.C. Canada, Finland, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Italy, the UK, and Germany are all among the countries that have suspended their funding to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA. The agency supports Palestinian refugees in Gaza and elsewhere, and it is by far the largest body providing humanitarian assistance inside the territory. But according to Israeli intelligence reports that surfaced on Friday, 12 of its staffers were involved in the Hamas attacks of October 7th. And yesterday, that allegation prompted Canada's UN ambassador, Bob Ray, to deny any accusation that the country has been funding terrorism.
6: What we have been doing in supporting UNRWA over the last 75 years has been assisting the humanitarian work of UNRWA. That's what we've been doing. And we want to be very clear that we're going to continue to support the humanitarian situation in Gaza precisely because it's so serious. And let's not make a political football out of this. It has to do with saving lives. We have to keep our focus on that.
5: Now, UN General Secretary Antonio Guterres has announced that he'll be meeting with UNRWA's major funders tomorrow to discuss the agency's future. Louise Blay is a former ambassador and deputy permanent representative of Canada to the United Nations. We reached her in Atlanta.
4: Louise Blay, can Canada continue, as Mr. Ray says, to support the humanitarian situation in Gaza, but
2: also pull funding to UNRWA? I think it's one thing to suspend and demand accountability on on the part of the UN. But I think suspending uh, indefinitely, I think, would have a, a terrible impact on uh, civilians.
4: Do you think Canada is right to, to suspend temporarily at this point?
2: I think so, yes. I think you want to send a very clear message to the UN leadership to say how seriously uh, we're taking these allegations, how alarmed we are, and how much we want to make sure that the funding that Canadians are providing does not get in the hands of terrorists. I think these are legitimate requests. And I think without actually doing a suspension, I'm not sure it would have as much of an impact on the leadership. However, I will say that we also have to be clear with them what are the conditions by which we would resume funding. I know there's a meeting that will take place mm-hmm. tomorrow with the UN uh, Secretary General. I think at that meeting, we should be coming with those details. Mm-hmm.
4: You, you may have seen that a coalition of 28 groups put out a joint statement today condemning the suspension of funding by, by many countries to UNRWA in the midst of, quote, Humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza, unquote. The agency's commissioner general says its assistance is about to end as it stands now. What do you think all of this is going to mean on
2: the ground? Well, I really support what Ambassador Ray said. I think at the end of the day, this has to be about lives. You know, now the UN is, is at the receiving end of, of, of legitimate criticism. But at the same time, you don't want to, uh, you don't want to completely destabilize the organization. I don't think that would be good for anyone. That wouldn't be good for Gazans. It wouldn't be good for the Israelis. It wouldn't be good mm-hmm. for uh, civilians around the world that depend on, on UN agencies. So I think there has to be a transition. And I think eventually, if I'm, just may add, I mean, UNRWA was always supposed to be a temporary agency. It was created in 1949 and was supposed to sunset once there was a political solution in place. We cannot expect Palestinians to be refugees forever. So in that sense, yes, we do. We need to pivot eventually, but first there's got to be a political solution. Former U.S.
4: Ambassador to Israel, Daniel Kurtzer, weighed in on this in an interview with with CNN and acknowledged the the impact that that it could have. Here's a, here's a bit of what he said in that conversation.
5: If the uh, funding suspension goes on for too long, it will have a very deleterious effect on the humanitarian situation on the ground. And even Israel admits that UNRWA is the best positioned UN agency to deliver that humanitarian assistance. So we're
6: we're in a little bit of a pressure tactic here to get the UN to wake up to what, frankly, everyone has known as a longstanding problem.
4: So this, as he points out, and others have as well, is, is not a new discussion, not new concerns with UNRWA. But can that reform,
2: should it, in your view, happen now? Well, it's difficult to reform in the middle of a war, um, f- for sure. I think that we have to have realistic expectations on the UN leadership to, uh, to fix Uh, Some of the problems. I think we've heard that they say that they can manage up until the end of February. So there's a bit of a month here. But at the end of the day, we will have to risk manage. A little bit, because I think it will be very difficult for the UN to guarantee 100 percent that there is not going to be any more sympathizers within the, well, I think it's 30,000 employees who are Palestinians. So I think we have to be careful as to what we are going to ask the UN to do and make sure that it is realistic.
4: What kind of conditions ultimately need to be met, in your view, for countries like Canada to restore the funding?
2: Well, uh, as far as I understand this, uh, these employees, this all came out of intelligence that came out of Israel. So I think at some level, we have to turn the table over to UNRWA and say, you need to monitor this more carefully. There are many, uh, there are experts that can help them conduct an investigation. Some are calling for an external investigation because in the past, we have reasons to believe that UNRWA has not been able to self uh sort of mm-hmm. self-examine its operation but i, I will come back and, and say that it is we are in the middle of a war i that will make an investigation more difficult it, 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 it complicates everything so this is not going to be done overnight and but i think um it has to be done it has to find a way but i'll come back with saying that there has to be those guarantees as much as they can be made, but donors such as Canada will have to be okay to risk manage the part that can't be guaranteed.
4: You mentioned the meeting in New York tomorrow with UNRWA donors. What are you going to be listening for? What would you want to hear from the UN Secretary-General,
2: Antonio Guterres? I'd like to hear him express real concern, um, apologize, for the lack of of ability of the organization to self manage these issues and a clear plan as to what he he, he will do and something that is uh, and it may, he may have to come out and say look we'll need a, we need an external mm-hmm. uh, audit an external investigation what we're hearing now is dismay that this happened mm-hmm. um, concern. Uh, but really, they keep coming back. Don't suspend. Don't suspend. Don't suspend. Um, Palestinians will suffer. I'm not hearing so far yet. Here's what I plan to do to deal with this problem. It is a problem, and we need to deal with it. I'm not hearing that yet. Is he reserving that for tomorrow? I don't know. But if I were in the room as ambassador, as as I was back then, mm-hmm. that's what I want to hear. Is is a real resolve, um, and uh, and at least the the contours of a plan to deal with with this problem. Louise Blais, thank you for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you.
5: Louise Blais is a former ambassador and deputy permanent representative of Canada to the United Nations. We reached her in Atlanta. us has not in an urgent time of desperate need as a last resort only emptied our bladder in the great outdoors well if you're caught irrigating england's green and pleasant land watch out there could be splashback in the form of a fine at least two men in Hertfordshire have been ticketed for relieving themselves at the side of the road and the borough doing the fining is called decorum the incidents happened at the end of last year and today the guardian reported that the council has been in touch with the family of one of the men and it says it will continue to clamp down on what is known in those parts as wild weeing. Joe Mohm is the head of the Good Law Project. We reached him in London.
4: Joe, in your estimation, just how big a problem is wild weeing or peeing in the UK?
0: Well, it's difficult for me to say because really I'm a tax lawyer and I haven't conducted an independent study into the prevalence of wild weeing. Uh, Obviously, it's something of an issue because lots of local authorities, councils, municipal bodies, if you like, in the UK are resorting to criminalising the conduct.
4: Why do you think it's reached that point? Maybe people are sick and tired of the mess, yeah? Well, I can see that point myself
0: if people are weeing in shop doorways. I'm less sympathetic if people get sort of caught short, as we say in the mm. UK, when they're on a, a long walk through glorious nature or, you know, you're on a car journey and, and nature calls and there's no public toilet handy.
4: There's cases of two two men in, in particular. Where exactly were, were these two men that have made the headlines were leaving themselves? They were ticketed. And where was this happening?
0: Um, I actually don't know. Oh. I haven't read the, the okay. Guardian. Page. That's okay. Sorry. I'll
4: tell you. So I've learned uh, "caught short" is one expression you just taught me. "Lay by" is another one I've learned. I didn't know it's it's equivalent to the rest lay stop by here. Is the side of the road. Yeah, side of the road. Uh, not court a formal. Short is self-explanatory. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, rest stop. Not you know. People here may hear rest stop and think there's washrooms and it's like you know there's a. Fast food place and place to park for a bit. This is more a side of the road situation. So, these two men uh, were yeah. ticketed there, and one of them, part of their case was, you know, they have a prostate issue. People know this. You had to go. You sound like you're on their side. <laughs> Town councils, um, borough <laughs> councils, uh, say I this is littering. What been, do you think? I haven't yet been
0: instructed to to represent anybody on the <laughs> issue, but um, and I'm very happy to say this on air. You know, I've, I've. I've been uh, caught short um, Mm. myself. So,
4: (laughs) you understand the point.
0: I do certainly understand the point. Yes.
4: So, do you think that uh, borough councils defining this as littering, or these two men who were ticketed, do you think that that's an abuse of the law or a misuse of what's on the books? It is
0: a, a misuse of the law. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear to me that having a a wee on the side of the road is not littering. I think the definition of littering is leaving rubbish lying around, and plainly it's context-specific. So if you do have a a wee in a, a shop door front on your way home from a bar, that's probably not littering, but I would say that with less confidence than I would say mm-hmm. that, you know, if you're on a nature walk, and you have a wee, I would say that's clearly not littering. It is context specific.
4: Yeah. Is that I have not participated in this particular act? Well, as an adult, no, I can't speak to when no, I was a no, child, but yeah, no. <laughs> but is there a protocol that you need know, to talk about being context specific? Right at the side of the road? Should they be going, you know? Into the woods a little more wh- what are the parameters that you yes. think is are okay because it leaves a puddle and they sure it's going it 's going to go away eventually, but there might be a smell, and if a lot of people make a mess there, what about the other the other hikers
0: well it 's not a a moral judgment and it 's not a judgment <laughs> on public decency, offending public morals it 's a sort of stricter legal test, mm-hmm. and I think the test really is do you leave litter that is of the essence of littering and and I think my point is that if you have a a wee on a permeable surface it will soak in quite quickly I don't want to delve too much into specifics but um, it will soak in quite quickly and so just doesn't answer to the description of of litter Um, so if you leave a, a nappy behind that's plainly littering wherever you do it If you leave a number two, um, that's a a little bit more difficult. If you leave a wee, particularly on a, a permeable surface, I think that's almost certainly not littering.
4: And why do you think they've gone with littering and not, I don't know, exposure, public indecency, whatever? that's a very good question. They seem to have relied upon
0: the legal advice from uh, a man who describes himself as the wig. So in uh, the UK, uh, barristers, uh, uh, I'm one of these people wear wigs in in particular courts. And this man who, who has an undergraduate degree in law, so not a very highly qualified lawyer, nevertheless describes himself as the wig. He seems to have been giving advice to local authorities, telling them that it is Littering, and I assume that they have been using this power, and nobody has challenged them. They've just mm. paid the relatively modest fine. But I think if anyone were to challenge it, the the local authority would would lose.
4: The fact that the borough uh, in question is called Decorum is something that made us chuckle too.
0: Uh, England, <laughs> I'm afraid to have to tell you, is full of extremely silly place names and, and decorum is particularly splendid and, and you can't but think that perhaps other local authorities would have been less stringent in the way mm-hmm. in which they apply or misapply anti-littering laws.
4: This is a local story of one borough in the UK but, but do you think it's grabbed all of this attention around the world because it's such a universal issue?
0: That's right and I did see somebody telling me that There has been a recent case on the issue in in Germany as Mm -hmm. well. And the German courts apparently decided consistently with the view that I've been expressing that having a (laughs) having a we was not littering. So I was I was relieved um, having gone public with my legal analysis to discover that the German courts apparently agree.
4: Relieved. Nice. Nicely done, Joe. (laughs) If
0: only it was deliberate.
4: (laughs) Thanks for your time.
0: It's a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on.
5: Neil. Yes. Joe Joe Mohm is the executive director of the Good Law Project, who just happened to use the word relieved. He was in London.
7: (laughs) Hello, I'm Jess Milton.
5: Protesters in Kenya this weekend chanting, stop killing us. Demonstrations were held in multiple cities across the country in what the Associated Press is describing as the largest event ever held in the country against sexual and gender-based violence. The unrest follows the high-profile killings of two women this month. Audrey McGinney is an advocate for women and girls in Kenya, the co-founder of Femicide Count Kenya. We reached her in Nairobi where she was part of a protest on Saturday.
4: Audrey, what are some of the chants, the cries you heard, the moments from these protests that that stay with you still
8: today? There was mumetuzoea. Mumetuzoea is Kiswahili for meaning you're used to us. Uh, There was um, stop killing women, Mm -hmm. stop killing girls. There was a song that we were singing um, and we were singing, um, especially directing it to men. And then there was a call for also there was a chant. We kept saying we want to be protected and not to be killed. You know this
4: issue well. You've been studying, you've been speaking to women for some time, not just this weekend.
8: But what was it like to be in that crowd hearing those words? It was very, it was very affirming. There was a lot of energy and there were so many women. And I was for the first time, I was so energized in a really, really long time Mm -hmm. of having studied and talked about and just feeling like I'm doing this by myself, you know, going through the motions and I felt like I was doing it by myself Mm -hmm. to look around and realize that I wasn't just the only person who felt like this was an issue that needed to be spoken about i I was emotional, and I could feel the emotions running through the system mm. or running through the um, running through all of our veins and running just through the crowd. Maybe one of the things that I can talk about was just before we started marching, one of our female leaders came and she wanted to give a speech, and we didn't want to let her do that because one of the questions we were asking her was. Where were you all this time? All this time that we've been having this issue on and mm-hmm. we've been speaking about it and you have said nothing about it. This was Why a politician. Why you want to show up today to do something? Yes, this was a politician. Mm-hmm. You know, for everybody to feel like that, to feel like, you know, this is an issue that has been going on for so long and yet nobody's saying anything about it. Mm-hmm. And now, now we are angry. Now we are all coming together. It was just... It was uh, it was surreal uh, let me just say that it was surreal. I, co- I i cannot put it into words i i honestly can't yeah
4: there have been protests before and this issue certainly is not new as you've said it sounds like this time felt different this gathering felt different to you
8: yes the gathering felt completely different you know having other people come on board to be able or to start talking about these issues fueled this particular conversation, Mm -hmm. because when the deaths of the two people, of the two women happened this particular year, because we had one of Starlet Wahu, she was killed and then, you know, the media, the media described her, the very first thing that the media said was that, oh, Starlet Wahoo, the young lady was seen on video wearing a red short dress. Mm -hmm. That is the first thing that, that is the very first thing that they were describing her, Oh. Most definitely, they were, you know, victimizing her. It was her fault that this happened to her.
4: They're putting the onus on her. And now there was a second victim.
8: Yes, yes, yeah. By you know talking about how she's dressed and you know the color of the dress and how short it was. And then now the second victim was um, was decapitated. And yeah, we were like, no, we are not having this anymore. And the organization, you know, just went into motions and, you know, conversation started taking place. But I just need to also just put it out there that last year we counted 152 um, deaths at femicide count, Kenya. 152 femicides. This has been the highest number ever since we started counting. Yeah. Yeah. So the severity
4: of the two high profile cases you mentioned, the severity of the number 152, but also what Amnesty International is saying, as you've seen, I'm sure more than 10 women killed in in femicides in just the last 29 days. So since the start of 2024, are all of those things together pushing this issue to a new level in Kenya, do you think, to a point that it might affect change this time?
8: Yeah, it's pushing things to a very new level. It's pushing things to a new level, which is beautiful. It's it's ugly that women are dying, but it's beautiful that things are being pushed to a new level. So even today, another woman um, who had gone missing has been reported dead. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to feel like or I tend to see that what also happens a lot is that the month of January also records um, the highest number of cases sometimes or a very high number of cases. Then the other thing that is happening here is that apart from just the deaths that are happening or the femicides that are happening is that um we have no other issue to speak about um the reason why we were able to record 152 femicides last year was because in 2022 um 2022 was an election year 2021 was a campaign year and then we were also living in in COVID and 2020, we were in COVID. These were the most important issues for people or for the media to talk about. I will remind you or I will let you know that most of our most of the count comes from it comes from the media. And if there is no issue that the media is focusing on, then the th- the next thing that they are going to focus on is a at all issue i am very happy that this is the issue that has come to be and this is what we are going to be speaking about right now because as you're saying as you have said or as amnesty international is saying that these debts are particularly very high and something needs to be done it's about time that something is done i was reading that that there are laws against
4: gender-based violence on the books in kenya yes but what does that look like
8: in practice in practice, I'm going to say they don't look very good. So when it comes to implementation, it's not, it doesn't look very good. We are signed on to international treaties, on to regional treaties. We have also written very nice, very good laws. Um, but then when it comes to practice, it's not very good. I am very, very afraid that the change that we want to see from the government might not actually happen. We have been making noise for a whole month After recording 152 deaths, we have not had our government official say anything about this. We are still waiting. Currently, I know that um, there are groups and there are people who are drafting petitions that they want to share with the duty bearers. And I really, really hope and pray that these petitions that are being drafted are going to literally make a change. But I am so, so afraid that this might not also happen. But I really do hope that change is going to happen. I'm looking forward to that change um, happening. I'm looking forward to policies changing. Mm-hmm. But I'm also looking forward to men even changing their conversations. One of the things that I'm also afraid of when we're having, even, even when we're talking about femicides, is how other men, we have, we, we've gotten really good allies in men. But then there are still others who are still saying, you know what, you women need to shut up. You're not going to eat our money and think that we are not going to kill you there are still men who are speaking like that. Even after all these deaths, they're still blaming the deaths on the women. So that's also a problem. It needs to get to a point where we are all understanding that this is not just a woman's issue. You know how we think about all gender issues being a woman's issue. It's not just a woman's issue, but this is a societal issue. Audrey, thank you. Okay.
5: Audrey Mugenyi is the co-founder of Femicide Count Kenya. She's in Nairobi. And we've posted more on that story to our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. On a recent morning, Gordon Blackmore was out hunting seabirds near Cape Ray, Newfoundland and Labrador. But When he saw a dark shape in the water, his attention turned to something else entirely. So he went and told his mother, Wanda Blackmore. We reached Ms. Blackmore in Porto Basque, Newfoundland and Labrador.
4: Wanda, what did your son see that morning that that got him so excited and then had him run to you to tell you all about it?
7: Um, first, he thought it was just like an old log or something mm-hmm. in, in the water And upon investigation, uh, he noticed that it was the hull of a a wooden ship. So he rushed home and he asked me about it. And if I ever knew of a wooden ship or wreckage in in the Cheeson Beach area, and I told him I didn't. So when he showed me the pictures, I was very excited. What got you so excited about it? For me, personally, it was to find out the history of it. Mm how it got there.
4: It's a mystery waiting to be uh, <laughs> unraveled, certainly. I, I saw a, a, a photograph from far away. It almost, I mean, if you looked at it quickly, you could think it's a whale, I think, to my eyes. What did you think when you saw it?
7: First when I saw it, I just saw this big black thing in in the water, and well, I knew it was boards because my son had told me, but uh, it, it, at a quick glance it could have looked like a beached whale.
4: Yeah. It's, it's yeah, quite remarkable. I know the Shipwreck Preservation Society at this point has said it could be from, from the 1800s. What did they tell you
7: about why they think that is? They told me because of the wooden tunnels, mm-hmm. uh the, the, the pegs that's keeping the wreck together. There's also copper pegs uh, there. So with mm-hmm. a combination of those two, that's how they came up with the date.
4: And why do you think... Based on, you know, the conversations you've had so far, why do you think it, it resurfaced now?
7: Personally, I think it washed out of our beach Yeah. because um, with all the wave action we've had this last while and and in 2022, Fiona had struck. Mm-hmm. Uh, that washed away a lot of the beach. You think it was buried I, in the sand until personally, now? Personally, I do think, yes. You know,
4: wh- why is that? Have you gotten up close to it? Yes, ma'am.
7: I, I don't see no ocean life onto it, like any barnacles, any kelp, any even mussels or, mm-hmm. or wrinkles or whatever would settle onto a structure like that. And there's no algae onto it.
4: It's almost spooky yeah. <laughs> to hear you talk yeah. about it. I can just imagine you sitting, you know, at your keyboard. Have you been just sending all of these excited emails? What are you saying to these these groups as you try to solve this mystery?
7: Well, I, I've uh, contacted the rooms. They they put me over to the Maritime Archives with MUN. Uh, so I spoke to those guys, and they told me also to get the shipwrecks and help people involved. Mm-hmm. So I gave them a call, and I emailed all of them. I've emailed uh, our premier here in Newfoundland. Um, you name it, I, I've sent messages. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Any responses yet? Anyone else coming to take a look? Anyone official to investigate? Um,
7: As far as I know, this week, uh, there's supposed to be some officials coming out, according to what our MHA, Andrew Parsons, has said. Okay.
4: And what about your neighbors out in Cape Ray? I mean, are are people all hanging out, looking at it now, taking pictures? Yes, ma'am. It's
7: all (laughs) over Facebook. Um, On Friday, which was a nice sunny day here, it was a steady stream of traffic.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What are people saying? You know, as you're as you're chatting about it, what uh, there must be tons of theories and old, you know, local lore that's being woven into things.
7: Yes, there is. There's been a few different uh, ships, uh, names of ships, sorry, uh, tossed around. Uh, some dating back in like seventeen something, some eighteen hundred and something, um, but nobody knows for sure, and that's where the mystery is. We we would like to know for sure. Uh, even to put a date onto it would be wonderful.
4: Is there anything securing it out there? I mean, if the if the weather were to change, are you worried that it might disappear again before officials take a look?
7: Actually, there was a gentleman just put a post a post on Facebook not over so long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wreck has moved, according to what he said. It's mm-hmm. moved a few feet or uh, I'm not sure how many feet away from uh, where it was to. Um, but he's worried that it will disappear before officials do get here, Uh, and I agree with him.
4: Well, that's some breaking news. So are you guys going to do anything, or is there any official advice on what to do?
7: Um, I'm not sure, because I did see that our local service uh, chairperson at Kate Ray posted that she had spoken to Andrew, so Mm -hmm. I don't know what came of that conversation.
4: Yeah, I think I think uh Andrew Parsons, your MHA as you mentioned, is is telling people not to take things away from it, don't take any souvenirs from it. But no. but if 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 people are worried about it slipping away, uh do you you know do you think people will respect
7: the wreck? They they will respect the wreck, but they will try to get it uh yeah. to stay where it's to so people can have a look. hmm
3: What yeah.
4: what story have you written in your mind about this? this ship
7: right now it's a who what when where and why kind of deal for me Uh, where did the ship come from who was it carrying what happened to it and how did it end up where it's to and why did it end up there it's the question the, the ship has a story to tell it's just what is the story
4: and what is finding out like what is having that story written out and knowing the history as someone who's lived there your whole life, what would that mean?
7: It would mean a great deal to our corner of the island, yeah. to be honest with you. Um, like, I've heard a few dates even before the 1800s being tossed around. I've heard as early as 1750. Um, my question is, okay, how did these people, like, how big was the ship, for instance? Because mm-hmm. the part that we've seen is about 90 feet. Um... Where did these people come from? Are they my ancestors that was on that ship? That's the question a few people is tossing around now. Well Wanda, yeah.
4: I hope you get some answers soon, and then you can tell us all about
7: it next time. Thanks for this. Oh, my love, my fingers are crossed on getting answers. Take care, Wanda. You too, dear.
5: Wanda Blackmore lives in Cape Ray, Newfoundland and Labrador. We reached her in Porto Basque. Finding a family doctor in Ontario, like in every other province and territory in Canada, can be hard. Losing one is even harder. Come May 1st, 10,000 people in Ontario will lose their caregivers. Last week, the Group Health Centre in Sault Ste. Marie announced that it would be dropping about one in six of its clients due to a lack of doctors to replace those who retire. Dr. David Barber is the chair of the Ontario Medical Association's Section on General and Family Practice. We reached him in Kingston, Ontario.
4: Dr. Barber, is this a done deal? Do you think there's any way uh, a solution can be found for people to be able to keep their doctors before this this May first deadline?
6: Um, well, I, I think that we're at a state um, now that's taken years to, to get to, mm-hmm. and um, you know it's not something that we're going to be able to turn around um, very quickly. Um, so there just needs to be a lot of effort um, and planning, uh, you know, to, to fix the, the current uh, situation. Yeah.
4: So, if if there isn't a solution and it doesn't sound like there's going to be a quick one, where will these these people ten thousand people who no longer have their family doctor, where will they turn to? Who will they turn to?
6: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, in the in the Canadian healthcare system, that you know the only access you, you, to the system is through primary care, through family doctors, mm-hmm. or through emerge, um, or through walk-in clinics, and so. You know, the sad thing is when people uh, lose their family doctor, and this is happening more and more these days, uh, their only access is generally through emergency rooms, and we're seeing the impact of that already with mm-hmm. emergency rooms being overwhelmed uh, You know, by patients looking for medication refills because they don't have a family doctor. No, you know, we're going to walk-in clinics, but in Kingston, Ontario, where I am, you know, we lost six doctors and uh, left 7,000 patients without a family doctor last summer. And there's only one walk-in clinic and there are lineups uh, in the morning to get into those clinics, so it's a terrible situation for patients.
4: What are your concerns about the impact on people's health long term?
6: Well, I think it's devastating. I mean the, you know just to, I mean we know there's very good research to show that having um, a family doctor uh, leads to better health outcomes. It uh, leads to uh, you know less strokes, less heart attacks, better overall health for the patient and and savings to the healthcare system. So when when you lose that, uh, you know, there's harm to the overall system. Uh, and then to the patient, I mean, I, I can't imagine. I mean, the, the patients who are uh, left orphaned without a family doctor but have diabetes and or blood pressure problems, and uh, you, they need medications, they need checkups, and, and they're just not able to, to get those. And I'm sure a lot of people just honestly just give up. I mean, there's a good proportion that just don't have the resources you know to to take care of these things, um, and um, you know um, this is why it's so devastating for patients.
4: Dr. Andrew Park, the president of your organization, has said quote, "This is a preview of what is to come across Ontario if we don't take action now. what action needs to be taken now? What could happen tomorrow that would actually help?
6: I mean, there are some you know really simple things that, that can be done. you know uh, right away, we just need the cooperation of of the provincial uh, government. The bigger idea is to start um, surrounding family doctors with uh, teams of allied um, healthcare professionals, and you know what this would do would be to uh, help offload the, the family doctor to see more patients. As an example, you know we a good proportion of visits is uh, is, is you know aches and pains, joint pains, shoulder, back. And there's no reason why you know these patients can be assessed by a physiotherapist who are exceptionally well trained, um, and that opens up a spot for the for the family doctor to see more patients and look after more patients, um, um, and to to help uh, alleviate the, the issue of, of the 2.5 million patients already in, in Ontario that don't have a family doctor.
4: Are you getting uh, a sense that that the province of Ontario? Is understanding the seriousness of this, as, as you are all illustrating, do you, are you getting that support?
6: I, mean, I have to say no. I mean, I, I don't get the sense that they uh, understand the gravity of the situation. Um, you know, they, they will point out, they'll say, well, you know, Ontario has, you know, 90% of Ontarians have a family doctor. It's simply not true. I mean, based on the 2.2 million, that's it's actually 15%. And, um, you know, we estimate by 2026 that it's going to be one in four uh, people in Ontario will not have a family doctor. And that's just, you know, the impact of that is, is going to be huge. And I, I don't, you know, the government, there's been some, you know, band-aid solutions, but, you know, they haven't reached out to our section. Uh, you know, representing 15,000 uh, doctors in Ontario, and and uh, but we need to collaborate, and we're we want to collaborate because uh, because the patients, uh, all of the patients' health uh, is, is at risk.
4: Why do you think, uh, you know, what gives you that sense that that they're not taking this seriously? Why do you think that's happening?
6: Well, I mean, the the this is going to take a huge commitment. I've, I mean, I haven't heard from the government ever say that you know, there's a family medicine crisis in Ontario. Uh, I haven't heard them say that, you know, uh, we acknowledge that uh, there are not enough family doctors uh, for people in Ontario, and, and, and until you acknowledge that, then, you know, action uh, cannot happen. And and I think, um, you know, the reality is this is gonna take a lot of resources. It's gonna take a huge commitment uh, for the provincial government to, to fix this issue. And um, so I'm just, Hoping that they they step up soon, and I mean, you know time is running out, and um, you know we we need to have some quick wins. Um, and I, I think it's also important for the family doctors on the ground to hear that support from the the you know the government. They don't hear that, and you know that they're quite uh, disillusioned uh, with the, with the whole situation. Of course.
4: So as that May first deadline approaches, what would you say to people in Sault Ste. Marie who are losing their family doctor?
6: I mean, this is the, the the difficult piece. I mean, there's there are no simple solutions. I mean, uh, you know, just to, you know to you know use the the you know the walk-in clinics and you know find um, you know there are some solutions that are online through through telephone services that might be able to help. Um, you know, at the last resort, you know, with the emergency room, oftentimes in, in rural areas is. Is, your, is what people are going to end up doing, which is just going to make the, the situation worse. I think, I mean, you know, beyond that, I mean, certainly advocating with their uh, MPPs, you know, about the issue and uh, making sure that the government pays attention to the issue um, because it's, um, you know, it's really, is, it's harming people.
4: Dr. Barber, thank you for your time.
6: Great, thank you.
5: Dr. David Barber is the chair of the Ontario Medical Association's Section on General and Family Practice. We reached him in Kingston, Ontario. London is known for being fashionable and diverse, but a new report suggests the British fashion industry is really only one of those things. A first ever nationwide census led by the British fashion council has found that less than 10% of executive roles in the fashion industry are held by people of color. That's despite the evidence that diversity only helps a business's bottom line. Daniel Peters is a designer and founder of fashion minority report. One of the groups involved in the census. We reached him at Copenhagen fashion week.
4: Daniel, are you liking what you see on the runways in Copenhagen so far?
5: I
1: think it's been really great, you know, in particular the opening speech from the CEO of uh, Copenhagen Fashion Week, but the show I've just been to for a brand called 100, the casting of the models was really diverse, which was great to see.
4: Did the speech talk about diversity in the industry or did it hit you for another reason?
1: I think the fact that it gave a nod to what's happening in the world right now. But also spoke about the fact that being in fashion, we can often have privileges and actually how are we using our privileges to really pay it forward? And that's something that's incredibly important to me. So I feel that it hit the right note just based on actually the different ways that people might be being affected by the many different things that are happening in the world, but also sustainability, but also diversity and just diversifying the industry generally
4: which is the focus uh, of your work with others on this report, of course, and why we wanted to talk to you today. When you got those findings back, Mm -hmm. did it match up with what you knew and you and those you've been talking to had been experiencing already?
1: I think it it, it helped to really validate the problem. And I hope that actually it really does that point of illuminating to a great deal of other people, not just not just those who experience the problems um, but those who can actually be part of the change that actually there are people who come from marginalized or you know underrepresented backgrounds who are still calling out or require change to actually make them feel a sense of belonging in the fashion industry.
4: What did it tell you to see the result that the majority of white men surveyed in the UK fashion industry believe the industry is diverse right now?
1: So I don't want for that stat to feel as if it's an attack on white men mm-hmm. generally or in the fashion industry. Um, I think it just shows the disparity between, you know, particular communities mm-hmm. about what we see actually happening to individuals. It's, you know, kind of telling that that community or that that demographic would feel more comfortable and feel more safe in in, in one a sense of belonging, but that actually the industry is diverse. Whereas actually the reality is there are a great deal of people who outside of runway shows and fashion campaigns are still not being seen, let alone being heard within the offices of our industry. So I think that it's one thing now that we've got that down on paper, but it's really how do we bring everybody to the table to actually really create that effective change.
4: Having it written down, how do you take the next step? Because often in, in corporate environments, even if they adopt a uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion protocol or mandate, it can often be in some quarters referred to you know, as a buzzword that they deride rather than a shift in perspective and worldview. So how do you get to that point?
1: You know as organizations there can often be a commitment from you know c-suite to actually create change for those who have been calling out for it but i think that what you find is that there can sometimes be a bottleneck where the conversation gets lost in the middle Uh, i feel that there are a great deal of kind of senior leaders and kind of mid-level management where sometimes the conversation drops off But the reality is that we all have to have some onus around this conversation of creating change. It's great that we've now got data. It's great that we can now see things in black and white, no pun intended. But it's really actually how we instrumentally embedding change and making sure that everybody within the organisations from an intersectional lens is actually seeing the different ways that strategies that are being put in place are being measured and actually how they themselves personally or individually thought that the changes are affecting them or us.
4: You, you said that, that when you first started out, you didn't feel your identity would limit your ability to succeed in the industry, but that over the 17-year journey you described towards achieving a sense of belonging, as you put it, there were many hurdles. Can you tell our listeners about some of those hurdles and how, how you overcame them?
1: I, I think one of the biggest things has been quite often being overlooked for promotions or gaining a different level of seniority, you know, even gaining a pay rise um, alongside my peers. And the result has made me have to kind of company hop to actually be able to get to that next level. I've never necessarily had that many, or or been in that many organisations where there's been an investment in my development in comparison or in contrast to other individuals whose voices are considered to be the loudest. But actually what it is, is that their identities are more prominent. But I think it really, again, boils down to that sense of belonging. Or not even a sense, or not just a feeling, but a knowledge that actually my identity is welcomed in this workplace. You know, actually how they thank me how we celebrate each other, Mm -hmm. um, how we acknowledge achievements, not just in close quarters, but in wider groups so that actually everybody else can understand that somebody's done great work. Mm -hmm. And outside of that, what are the development measures that we're putting in place, such as sponsorship internally and mentoring programs? That you're valued. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. How are we showing somebody that they are valued? you know i don't want to be loved necessarily in the yeah. workplace as work but i want to understand that there's value for what i contribute and that actually you're really taking the time to invest in me and to really nurture me because you see something that is a bright spark
4: yeah and i think also that that um there's an openness to the the change and the different opinions and the different perspectives that you're that you're bringing
1: yeah, 100% by having a more diverse team, you've got a more diverse train of thought and actually we're able to serve a more diverse customer. And there are many people, especially a younger demographic, but you know, many different ages who are going into companies and we're calling on on, on businesses to let us know what their mission, what their values are, what they stand for, because actually that's a company I want to work for. And actually for a consumer, that's the kind of company that they want to shop with.
4: Daniel, I appreciate your time. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
5: Daniel Peters is the founder of Fashion Minority Report, one of the groups involved in the UK Fashion Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Report. He's in Copenhagen. How many times have I typed to whom it may concern using the Calibri font? How many letters have I sent to the president of the CBC requesting a waffle iron for as it happens for morale purposes, employing Calibri's subtle blend of the classic and the modern? How many times have I been in the middle of a document and thought, this font is fine, I guess, and realized it was Calibri, but never again. That old standby most of us never noticed will be replaced by a new standby, Most of us will never notice. Three years ago, Microsoft announced that it was looking for a new default font in all of its office products to replace Calibri. The rumor mill ran amok. Would the new font be serif or sans serif? Would it have the letter K in it? Would it be right side up? I'm sorry. I don't know what kinds of questions people ask about fonts, but last year, all those questions were answered, whatever they were. The new font would be Aptos sans serif, K included, right side up, and according to Microsoft, it is bold, well-defined, directive, and constrained. It was crafted by designer Steve Madison to have, and I quote, the universal appeal of the late NPR newscaster, Carl Castle.
0: This is Carl Castle from NPR News. The world is vast, and NPR's coverage is far-reaching.
5: And the astute tone of the late show host, Stephen Colbert.
3: Welcome, one and all, to the Late Show. I'm your host, Stephen Colbert. We are right. We are right in the middle. We are smack dab in the heart of primary season, and Donald Trump is out there trying to win over the voters that matter most his juries.
5: Does the Aptos font have those things? Well, on one hand, no, because it's a typeface, and on the other hand, I I don't understand the question, but as of now, you can judge for yourself. The rollout is pretty much complete, and Aptos is now the office default. Although you may not really have noticed, because it was apparently designed to be the strong, silent type.